You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Well, good morning. We are really glad you're here, whether it's in person or online. If you're a visitor or a member, just thank you for joining us here at FIRST today. And if you're watching this later on at YouTube because you were at the Bloom Fiesta, yay that they got to go up this morning. And I always feel bad for visitors who come into town when it gets rained out or something, but in all honesty, when you're in the desert and you get rain, I'm gonna take that every single day. So anyway, we are so glad to have you here at FIRST. If I can have you stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. From Acts 9, 1 through 9, but Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Please be seated. If you're a guest or a visitor, or maybe you just don't know who I am, my name's Chris Sturgis. I'm an elder here at the church, and Brady Bryce, who is our senior minister, has gone this week with his family taking Lizzie, their daughter, to colleges in Colorado to see where she may end up going to college. But again, we are just so happy that you're here today. When we talk about Saul, most of us know that He becomes Paul and is the writer of much of the New Testament. But these verses reference his conversion. And what is conversion, and really, why should we care about that today? The Oxford Dictionary defines conversion as the process of changing or causing something to change from one form to another. So we take something that is being used for one thing and change it so that it can be used for something else, or change it so that it can be powered a different way. It becomes something completely different than what it was originally intended for. So the first rule in the conversion process is there's something that needs to be changed. There has to be that need for change because as the old saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. There's all sorts of examples. Furnaces can go from gas to propane. Coal-powered electricity becomes solar or wind-powered. Old school buses become campers. I mean, there are hundreds of examples we could all think of and just trade those back and forth. But a conversion means that something new is made out of something old, and that's what we see in the scripture today. Paul, still Saul at this point, is going through the conversion. God sees a need for Saul to be converted, and he has changed, and what a change it is. Looking back at today's scripture, there's a huge difference between Saul in verse 1 and Saul in verse 8. Verse 1, Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Seven verses later, 
He's being led like a child by the hand into Damascus. And it's in that humbled state as a child that Saul has his conversion. So what can we see and learn from this conversion process? I think the first thing we can see is that God's grace is often shown through powerful acts. Often these things initially appear on the surface to be a catastrophe. And we learn, believe it or not, that good things often come from bad situations. And in Saul's case, we see that there was more than one reason that he needed a conversion. I mean, the first reason was he was persecuting Christians, at that time called followers of the way. We see this in verse 2 of today's scripture. Saul had asked the high priest for letters so he could round up men and women who were followers of the way and bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. It's interesting, just one chapter before this, at the end of chapter 7, in the beginning of Acts 8, we read that the people who stoned Stephen laid their garments at Saul's feet. And the very first word in Acts 8, and Saul approved of his execution. In verse 3 of chapter 8, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. That's the Saul we encounter at the start of today's scripture. But it's interesting because God had a plan for Saul. Saul is on his way to Damascus to continue his persecution of the followers of Jesus. But Jesus calls him out. Jesus asks a simple but profound question of Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Seems a simple enough question. But hidden inside of it is a profound truth that should comfort every one of us who has given our lives to Christ. And what is that truth? The truth is that Saul wasn't actually persecuting Jesus, but his followers. And the reason that's so important to us today is that it shows the relationship that Jesus sees in his relationship to the church and every one of us. It shows that Jesus sees himself in each one of us in the form of the Holy Spirit. By saying me to Saul, he gave Saul his first glimpse of the relationship that one can have with Christ, that we're never alone and he is always with us. Jesus promised that in the chapter in John 14 when he said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring, you to, bring to you remembrance of all that I have said to you. What a great comfort to always remember that Jesus sees us as inseparable. But back to Saul, because this conversion was personal. This was Jesus and Saul and nobody else. Now, I know there were a couple other people there, but this was Jesus and Saul. And we know this because in verse 7, it says the men traveling with Saul were speechless. They heard a voice, but they didn't see anyone. But Saul had heard the voice of Jesus and seen him as well. He saw him in the form of light from heaven. And Saul needed to see Jesus because it asserted his role later on as an apostle. And we see what the requirements are for an apostle as set out in Acts 1, when Matthias is chosen to replace Judas. One of these men must become with us, the 11 remaining disciples, a witness to his resurrection. Saul, seeing Jesus, makes him a witness to the resurrection. And he's one who is sent out by Jesus. 
The specific qualification that they be an eyewitness of seeing Jesus after the resurrection is also talked about from Matthias. Because Matthias had been with Jesus since John the, the time of John the Baptist all the way through the death and the resurrection. And Saul, now Paul later on in Corinthians says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? So on the road to Damascus, Saul has seen Jesus, but hears him as well. Falling to the ground, as it says in verse 4. And you know, it's interesting how often we sometimes take ourselves from a verse in the Bible and have to try and figure it out more than God really cares for us to look at it. And that happens so often on the road to Damascus. We try and figure out something else than what the scripture says as to what was going on. You know, was, Paul, was Saul sick? Was he dehydrated? Was it residual guilt at Stephen's stoning? Maybe it was an epileptic fit. Sometimes we try to become amateur armchair psychologists, but as N.T. Wright says in his biography of Paul, this is next to useless in real historical investigation. What this really comes down to is this was a personal meeting with the risen Christ that brought Saul to his knees. This encountered humbled Saul and it changed him. And in all honesty, it changed the world. This was the moment of Saul's conversion. Wright, also in his biography of Paul, says that when something shakes someone to their very core, so that a person emerges from the cataclysm in some ways the same, and in some ways radically different, there are no doubt many explanations that could be given. Saul does emerge changed, but in some ways the same. As he was going the road to Damascus, he was a zealot. He was a zealot who was educated, who was persecuting followers of the way. And after his sight is restored, he is also a zealot because for the next 35 years, there is no one more determined to spread the good news of the gospel message. This is a fulfillment of Saul's own ancestral hope. And that brings us to the second need for Saul's conversion, because Saul was part of God's plan. God wanted Saul, as he shows us in verse 15 of Acts 9, when he's telling a clearly skeptical Ananias to go lay his hands on Saul's eyes. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, go, because he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And again, this is so very important to us today because we're often like Ananias, skeptical of God's plan today. I mean, Ananias literally questions God, basically saying, God, do you know who this guy is? Do you know what he's done to your followers? But God had a plan. And more importantly for us today, right now, God still has a plan. The importance of the verse with Ananias is that God chose someone that the rest probably wouldn't have. And God does this a lot. He chooses unlikely people to be part of his plan. He did this with a gentleman named John Newton, John Newton was the captain of a slave ship, and he also invested in the slave trade. But God said, that's not who I see you as you are. And John Newton had a conversion. And for the last 20 years of his life, he became a cleric in the Church of England. But we might recognize him as the writer of Amazing Grace. And when you read the, the lyrics to Amazing Grace next time, 
remember where John Newton came from. There's also a gentleman named Chuck Colson who was one of the Watergate people in Nixon's White House. In fact, in the White House, he was known as the evil genius. And he actually said, I would walk over my grandmother to make sure Richard Nixon gets reelected. And he went to jail for what he did. And in jail, God said, that's not who I see you as. And Chuck Colson had a conversion. And when he came out of prison, he started many ministries, including prison, prison fellowship ministries to help people like he had been when he walked in. Now, something tells me if you'd asked Mr. Colson on his way into prison, if he had seen what was coming, he would have certainly said no. And something tells me if you had asked Saul if he had seen what was coming on the road to Damascus, he probably would have just laughed. But this confrontation between Jesus and Saul brought radical change to Saul's life. Saul becomes new, eventually becoming known by his Latin name and the name we usually call him, Paul. Saul discovers that Jesus of Nazareth is the hope that he had been seeking. N.T. Wright again discusses that Saul had been brought up in a world of hope for the children of Israel, for the Redeemer of the chosen people. However, hope is not optimism, and sometimes we get those confused, because optimism is a feeling. Hey, things are looking good. Everything's going to be okay. But hope, especially as it was viewed in the Jewish and early Christian world in which Saul lived, was really quite different. Hope was and is a deliberate choice when things seem dark. It's not a feeling about the way things were moving, but a faith. A faith in one God, the God who created the world, the God that called Israel to be his people. And Saul knew from his study of the Torah and the Psalms that this God could be trusted to sort things out in the end, to be true to his promises, to vindicate his people at last, even if it had to be on the other side of terrible suffering. Wright said that hope, when seen in this light, is not a feeling, but it's a virtue. You have to practice it. You practice the virtue of hope through worship and prayer, through invoking the one God, through reading and reimagining the scriptural story, and through consciously holding the unknown future within the unshakable divine promises. So maybe we wouldn't have thought that Saul was such a hot choice to deliver God's message of hope to the world. But as I said, God has a plan. We may not have thought Saul a good choice because we tend to look normally at the outside of people. And that's, that's a perfectly normal thing to do, to visually see what we can see. And what did Ananias see in Saul? A zealot who was rounding up God's people putting them in chains and taking them to jail. He uttered threats of murder with every breath. And his mission before he got on the road was to jail and kill as many of the Lord's followers as he could. I mean, Saul certainly would have been my choice to be God's PR man. But that's the great thing. It wasn't my plan, and it's not my plan now. It's God's. And Saul fit God's plan he fit God's need. And because Saul fit God's need, his plan, there was that need for a conversion. And Saul's conversion shows us again how God overcomes all things 
that get in the way of the gospel message. It's only through God's plan and power that the worst persecutor of that church, the church's biggest physical enemy, was changed into its most influential evangelist. The person we see as least likely to convert when we go out those doors may make the most committed Christian. We saw that from John Newton and Charles Colson. Unlikely people become candidates for God's conversion and work as a part of his plan. Johnny Lee Cleary became involved in gangs when he was 14 and eventually joined the Ku Klux Klan. And they loved him in the Klan because he loved to incite hate. And more than that, he loved to participate in the violence. But one day, he was in jail for fighting and he was sitting alone in his cell and he picked up the one book that was there and he flipped it open. And when he flipped it open, it was to Luke 15, the prodigal son. And as he read through, tears streamed down his eyes because he knew this was his story. And because he read all the way to the end, he knew that God was still waiting for him to come home. And Johnny Lee Cleary got down on his knees weeping and, and repented and said, God, I've messed up my life. I don't know what to do, but I need you. And God was there. And Johnny Lee Cleary said when he came out of prison, the next day he felt like a new person, physically felt weight lifted from his shoulders. Johnny was made a new creation by God. And that's what God did for Johnny. But with conversion, it's not about what happens, but what happens next. Johnny's repentance, Saul's blindness, those are all things that happen at that moment, but what's important is what happens after that moment. You see, Johnny went on to become a Pentecostal evangelist and the first elder in a mostly African-American church. And he spent the rest of his life trying to make amends for what he had done and repair the damaged relationships that he had, including one with Reverend Wade Watts, who became Johnny's best friend and mentor. He worked from then on to make something else happen, including working with the FBI to show them how white supremacist groups operated. Because it's not just about what happens at that moment of conversion, but about what happens after that. Once Ananias lays his hands on Saul's eyes, restoring his sight through the Lord's power, what does Saul immediately do? And it tells us in the next chapter. He immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the same man who made havoc in Jerusalem on those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? See, the people in Damascus knew he was coming. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The most unlikely people doing the most amazing things for God's plan. And here's the exciting part. Each one of us is part of God's plan. And each one of us, even if we've given our lives to Christ, has a need for conversion because conversion is not a moment. It's a lifetime. You know, we may not be as bad as Saul, or we may be worse, but 
but we need to be converted. And the reason is, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter what you think you've done, we all have room for improvement. We need that personal relationship with Jesus Christ that only comes with a converted life. And some of us, and there have been times myself included, that think, hey, gave my life to Christ, I've been baptized, I'm good. But that's just not true because our conversion is a continuous process. And God has a need for each one of us. As a church, we've chosen follow Jesus as our mission. That's it, follow Jesus. That means we're committed to do God's work, to be his disciples, to do what he asks us and needs us to do, to spread his message. Saul's job was to spread the message to the Gentiles, and the rest of his life, about 35 years, was devoted to it. And it was not an easy job. He received 39 lashes at least five times, and in approximately the 35 years of ministry, he was arrested at least three times and spent at least five and a half years in jail. He was stoned at Lystra in such a manner that he was dragged out of the city because everybody thought he was dead. And the next morning, he wakes up, and what does he do? He goes right back into that city. You see, it's not about what happens to us. It's about what happens after that. After our conversion, then what? Will it be the physical trials and punishments like Paul endured? I really don't know. But I do know what God says about his plans for me. God says in Jeremiah, For I know the plans I have for you, Chris Sturgis declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. Now, for those of you who've never read that, my name's not actually in the original scripture. I just added it in. Because I think sometimes if you do that, God's promises mean more to you. So our job, just like Saul's, is to take God's message to all of the people. Everyone who hasn't heard the message. That's our job, to follow Jesus and show the world inside and outside of these doors what the love of Christ looks like, and to show, Christ, show the world where they can find the love of Jesus. And even more than that, and this sometimes is hard, we're to be examples of what that love looks like. You know, after the pandemic started and, and we couldn't really get together. Outreach became something that we talked a lot about at elders meetings. How do we do this? How do we make this happen again? How do we get this revitalized? I have to tell you, there's some small groups in this church that have done amazing things during the pandemic. And there are more exciting things being done and opportunities that will be coming soon in the church and out in the community. And as we follow Jesus, part of our job is to reach out to others not only with the message, but to show through work the message of hope and grace and love around us in action. You know, where can we show the love and grace that God gives us? Maybe to a desperate family who needs food or medicine. Maybe at the hospital working with families whose child has to stay there a long time. Or maybe to the caregivers who have been working with that family and have had such a hard time over the last couple years, and in all honesty, probably ever since they chose that field. Maybe down in Clubhouse or at the youth group, seeing the future of our church, and giving them an example 
of the grace and love that God has shown us. Maybe just by being kind and showing kindness. Because I have to tell you, when you go out into this world, if you're kind, that's salt and that's light. It's sad, but it is. If you're kind to other people, you're going to be different. And always in prayer, remembering how and where we can show others hope. And it takes work and it takes practice, but it's what we're called to do. And as Saul's example clearly shows us, it's not just about the road to Damascus, but it's about all the roads that we will travel as we walk out that door. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us an example of Saul that could turn and use the gifts that you gave him his whole life to become a vessel for your message to everyone. And Lord, where we need a change, help us with that conversion. Where we need to become a zealot to show this world your love and your grace and your mercy, may you guide us that we may have endless passion, endless devotion, and endless love because of the grace you showed us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.